Today's readings come from Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Paul writes to the people of Ephesus, an ancient city in Turkey near the Aegean Sea. He warns them about being immoral, using obscenities, and being greedy. Paul tells the Ephesians to live as children of light in the Lord. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Here ends our reading. My message this morning is based on these three short verses. Uh, they are often not read or even remembered because they are kind of sandwiched in between two rather well-known sections, which I would encourage you to read at some other time. But, but as often as it often is in our Bible, little verses pack a punch. Little verses, a few verses, have an awful lot to say. And we need to hear what God is saying to us today because you and I do indeed live in difficult times. What I'm about to tell you should come as no surprise to any of you, but you know, the worldwide global economic crisis has cost trillions of dollars in lost wealth. People who a few years ago had great uh, reasonable prospects for the future have seen a lifestyle of hard work wiped out, and with the loss comes some rising uncertainty. Then three weeks ago, somebody sent me a link to an article written by Pastor David Wilkerson. Some of you may remember that name. He wrote the book, The Cross and the Switchblade. Pastor Wilkinson stood up in his church in New York and issued a message predicting an imminent catastrophe for America. In his message to his church, he spoke of cities burning because of looting and rioting because of today's uncertain times. This, he said, would be the righteous judgment of God on this nation. In addition, we know that immediately following the last presidential election, gun sales shot up, particularly here in Texas for some reason. We know that people today are amassing gold and they are stockpiling their money. And even though church attendance is kind of up in our country, our own president recently said we are no longer a Christian nation. Coupled with that, if you get Newsweek magazine, maybe you remember the latest issue that said it said the end of Christian America. And it said that Christianity in America in the last decade from 1990 to now has dropped from where 86% of Americans say they are Christians to only 76% who claim to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, I find that interesting. Let's just say, for example, that that's true, that 76% of Americans are actually Christians then explain to me why only 18% of them attend church on any given Sunday in the state of Texas. I thought I came to the Bible Belt. I thought I came to the belt buckle of the Bible Belt, and I find out that less people who call themselves Christians worship on a Sunday in Texas than do in the state that I came from, the state of Illinois. Well, I think most of us would probably say, well, those 76% of the people who claim to be Christian may not really be Christian, at least not in the way that you and I would define it. In fact, today, 
a man just finished a report, and he said that what most people in America believe in is not necessarily Christianity, but he calls it a moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, that's a mouthful. Now, what is a moralistic, therapeutic deism? I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I don't have time to go into this great deal, but he said, basically, the people in America today believe that a God exists, he ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be good, nice, fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself, that God does not necessarily or particularly need to be involved in your problems except when he's needed in an emergency. And in the end, all good people go to heaven. That's a description that probably is more fitting of what people truly believe here in America these days. Is it any wonder that we are now the third largest non-Christian nation in the entire world? Did you know that? Only two countries in the world are larger non-Christian nations. China, India, and the United States. Only one country in the world receives more foreign missionaries than the United States. That country is Brazil. People view this country today as a mission field. On top of that, people, it appears, are losing faith in their government. Doesn't make any difference whether you're Republican or Democrat. There is a cynicism that about our leaders today that crosses party lines. These days that you and I have been living in for the last six, eight months and may live in for the next six or eight months or even years is a strange and disquieting time. In fact, if there was a pill we could take to make us feel better, most of us would run out and buy one. But what I'm asking today is, what is a Christ follower to do? How should Christians respond to some of this disquieting news that we can read in our papers, see on television, and hear on the radios? Well, I'm going to give you a couple of opinions first before we get down to the Bible. First of all, I largely agree with the analysis of our current national trend. I mean, it's kind of hard to be optimistic in these days, isn't it? It's kind of hard to be optimistic when your retirement nest egg suddenly vanishes or your job has been downsized to non-existence. That's one thing I'd tell you. I, I largely agree that it's tough times. Second of all, I have no idea whether people like Pastor David Wilkerson are right or not. But if he is, guess what? We're in for some troublesome days ahead. But third, I do believe that times like these often occur at hinge moments of history when for some reason or another, and this has happened down to the ages, God seems to kind of rearrange all of the pieces on the board, so to speak, sometimes just to get the attention of his people and the people who are in his church. Maybe this time period we're kind of caught between trapezes. You know what that would be like? You've let go of something you've hung on to for so long and you're kind of coasting through air, waiting for that next trapeze handle to appear. 
but not knowing whether we've got a safety net under us or not at the time. See, none of us here can predict what the stock market is going to do tomorrow. In fact, there's no one who has a crystal ball that could tell any of us here today what's going to take place in the next six months, eight months, five years, ten years, or whatever. Indeed, as the Bible says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. So again, I'm going to ask you, how should we as Christians respond to times like these? Our text this morning, those three little verses, offer us three answers. Each one of them are very clear directions for this strange situation we find ourselves in. It's a strange situation because sometimes it's a, it's a time of seeming contradiction. For example, things are getting worse. There's no doubt about it. But at the same time, I want to tell you something. There are great opportunities for the children of God and for the church of God. There are great opportunities for the body of Christ. And if we as Christians retreat into our shells and go, Oh, woe is us. Oh, woe is me. The world's going to hell in the handbasket. Guess what? We have shirked our God-given duties. These, these are great times for us, friends, as Christians. These are great times for us as a church proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to so many people who are hurting and distressed. Well, let's see whether we should be optimists or pessimists, or should we be somewhere in between? How does God's Word help us answer those questions? Well, that's what I love about God's Word, three simple little verses. Here's my first thing I see in Ephesians 5, and that's this. Watch your step. Watch your step. Verse 15, be careful then how you live not as unwise, but wise. Now, to be careful literally means to walk accurately or precisely. Some of you that still have the old King James Version of the Bible, it says, walk circumspectly. Walk circumspectly. It has the idea of being on a very narrow path with a cliff on one side, and you're going to walk very carefully so that you don't accidentally trip lose your balance, and fall over the edge and plunge to your death. Now, if you were going to walk the edge and the ledge, how would you do that? I would suggest that you would do it very slowly and very carefully. I say that because sometimes we are guilty of living our lives way too fast. We live our lives way too fast. We make too many snap judgments we make too many rash decisions, we speak too fast, we move too fast, we react too fast, we answer before we hear the question, and we keep on pressing with our pedal to the metal because we got so much on our plate and we dare not slow down. God forbid that we don't get it all done. Sometimes we're guilty of that. And did you know that it's even possible in the name of God to go too fast? You ever think about that? See, we want to right all of the wrongs of the world too fast. We go before we're ready. We speak before we have anything to say. We teach before we've ever been taught. And we build high before we ever build deep. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know where we're going. And because of that, we often trip and we fall. See, more often... 
We trip not in a headlong pursuit of evil, but our headlong pursuit of what is good. See, the answer, what is the answer to it, watching your step? I'll tell you, the answer is not owning a Blackberry. The answer is not in a day timer. The answer is not in, a, in an Outlook program. It's not in getting organized, but it's in the ancient words of the psalmist. So I was making a hospital visit yesterday, one of our members, who expressed uncertainty about the future. I said, it's interesting that you would be so uncertain because you've got one of these laying right by your bed. And you looked at it, and I opened it up, and I said, I'm going to start by reading you one verse from the 46th Psalm. The 46th Psalm in the 10th verse that says, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Friends, all I'm saying is that when we slow down enough to get God involved, we discover that God can do more through us than we can ever possibly accomplish on our own. I think that's part of the theme of what the current new women's Bible study is about, listening to God speak. Henry Blackaby in his book, in another book of his said, we ought to be looking and seeing where it is that God is working these days and listen to him and then join him rather than for us to quickly decide what we want to do and then say, oh, by the way, God, could you come here and bless that? We need to walk carefully. Watch our step. Be still and know that God is God. There's a second thing our text tells us, and that is to redeem the time. Redeem the time. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now, again, I'm going to go back to the old King James Version of the Bible for a moment. It says that we should redeem the time. Redeeming the time. Now, redemption or redeem is what? It's a salvation word. We all understand redeem. Jesus comes. He sheds his blood to buy us back. That's where it comes from. Not necessarily a salvation term, but from the marketplace. To buy back or to purchase. We need to redeem the time, friends. That means to buy back every opportunity, to take advantage of every opportunity. Now, why is that? Well, if you read to the end of that verse, what does it say? Because these are desperate times. The days are evil. Now, the NIV uses the word opportunity. And the reason it does is because in the Bible, in the Greek language, there are two different words for time. Did you know that? Two different words. One of the words is chronos. You probably recognize that, like chronological, a chronometer. It, it's about the passage of time in the sense that we talk about days and minutes and weeks. Somebody says, what time is it? And we say, well, it's 1029. Or we're going to leave in 10 minutes. Or the train arrives at 8.43. But there's another word in the Bible for time. And the word is kairos. Kairos. It's not the strict passage of time, but it's the moment of opportunity that requires action. Remember in the Bible it says, when the fullness of time had come, when we need to strike while the iron's hot. It's kind of what Martin Luther King meant when he talked to this vast crowd out in front of the Lincoln Memorial back on that hot August day in 1963. 
Martin Luther King said, we have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. Isn't that great? The fierce urgency of now. But that's not all. Paul says there's a particular reason why we as a church, there's a particular reason why we as Christ followers need to redeem the time and to grab hold of this fierce urgency of now. Did you catch the reason? It's at the end of verse 16. Because the days are evil. Or the message which says, these are desperate times. Now, I want you to flash back with me about 2,000 years ago. Let me give you a little Bible history lesson here. It's always good to know a little bit more about the Bible, right? Where was Paul when he wrote these words? Well, Paul was chained to the guards in a Roman jail. The emperor at that time, his name was Nero. He was kind of a perverted excuse for a king. Before long, Nero would do what? He would set fire to Rome, and he would blame it on who? On the Christians. And then he beheaded Paul. The city of Ephesus that Paul was writing to was a city that was totally given over to heathenism. In Paul's day, it was the most important city in the Roman province of Asia. Located near the coast, Ephesus was a place where all of the commerce came and went. It was a prosperous, booming, bustling city, and if you had a traveler's guide to Ephesus in that day, they would have said, please don't miss the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis. The Artemis was the same name as Diana to the Romans. Now, what's that all about? Well, Artemis, or Diana, whatever you want to call her, was the goddess of, dare I use this word in church, sex. Yeah, what better place to talk about sex than in church, because God is the inventor of it. But people are the perverter of it. In fact, this grand temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, in the middle of it, had a statue of a woman with multiple breasts, symbolizing unfettered sexual freedom. The people would gather together, they would work themselves up into some sort of a religious frenzy, and then they would just follow whatever their lustful desires were. One ancient writer said this about the town of Ephesus, their morals were lower than animals. Astrology flourished, black magic flourished, there were palm readers, there were seances, there was sorcery, all mixed together with sexual perversion to, to produce a pervasive form of idolatry that held that town and that area in its grip. Does it sound a little familiar? That it might be a fair description of places here and around this area in America? Well, if that's not bad enough, at the same time, persecution was rolling in on the horizon. As the gospel spread, the good news of Jesus Christ always faces opposition. People saw Jesus and his followers as a threat. And in the midst of that heresy, false doctrine began to creep into the church. That's why Paul could write these words. Stand firm because these are evil days. These are desperate times 
that Christians find themselves in. These are desperate times that God's church finds itself in. Now, I wonder, what would Paul say to us today if he were here? Interesting question. What would Paul say? I don't know for sure, but I think he might say something like this. Days of moral corruption offer special opportunities for the prosecution of great enterprises for the kingdom of God. He might stand before us like I want to do today and say, friends, hard times may be offering us the greatest opportunities we could ever have as Christians and as a church. See, evil days tempt us to despair. There's no doubt about it. They encourage us to give up. They encourage us to say, we can't do it. Every day is dark. The hearts of men have grown cold. There's nothing we can do. But I got to tell you, I, for one, refuse to think like that. I refuse to think that way. Sometimes we as Christians give up too soon. Sometimes we as a church give up too soon. But remember, days of moral corruption offer special opportunities for the kingdom of God. Here's some real good news, friends. The things that make it, make it difficult for us to live as Christians are the things that can also allow us to shine. See, hard times are blessings in disguise. Days of moral compromise offer incredible opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with someone else. See, when the world seems to be going haywire, we have a wonderful opportunity to share both in word and deed the life-changing power of Jesus. See, the darker the night, the brighter the light shines. Or as someone one time said, it's got to get really dark for you to see the stars. We are God's stars that he wants us to shine. Isn't that what he tells us to do? Let your light so shine. Let me tell you, when will your light be the brightest? In the midst of darkness. In the midst of darkness. Here's a third thing that God would tell us to do. It's very simple. Do God's will. That's not brain surgery, is it? Do what God asks you to do. Do God's will. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Now, I've always been moved by Dr. Martin Luther King's speeches. I remember having to read them at the seminary, reading that, you know, the I have a dream speech. But there's another speech that has always kind of captured my attention. It was really the last speech that he ever gave. He delivered it in Memphis, Tennessee on April the 3rd, 1968. It was on the night before he was assassinated. And if you read his speech in context, it is a remarkably hopeful message given the pressure of what was going on in his life and in our country at that time. He starts his message by supposing God was asking him a question. As I read this, I want you to think about it. Martin Luther King said it was as if God came to him and said, Martin, which age would you like to live in? Which age would you like to live in? He went on in his speech to survey all of human history. He started way back in Egypt. He went to Greece and Rome. 
He skipped over to the Renaissance, the Protestant Reformation. He got to the days of Abraham Lincoln and then on to the troubled times of 1968 when the whole fabric of our nation seemed to be about ready to kind of come unraveled. But here's his answer to that question. Which age would you most like to live in, Martin? He said, strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. Now that's a strange statement to make, Lord, because the world's all messed up. The nation is sick. Trouble is in the land. There's confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. That's why I remembered who said that. Martin Luther King. He goes on to talk about what a privilege it is for God's children to live in crucial times of history. Women who just finished the study of Esther, do you not remember when her uncle came to her and said, perhaps you are here for such a time as this? Who's to say, friends, that you're not in the job you have, in the school you have, in the classroom you have, in the family you have, in the church you have, in the nation you have for such a time as this? You know, as I read that speech again this last week, it just kind of builds to a powerful climax with some words that are not only poignant, but I almost found prophetic. I want to just read you the end of his speech. He says, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. I've looked over. I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land, and I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. You know, in a thousand years, we still may remember those words, but I was struck by just seven simple little words that he uttered the night before he died, I just want to do God's will. I just want to do God's will. Kind of summarizes how you and I ought to face the future, friends. Understand the fierce urgency of now, grateful for the privilege of being alive during times like this. I mean, Christians, yeah, we are optimists and pessimists. There's no doubt about it. But we ought to be more optimistic when we look at the world around us because we know that Jesus conquered the grave. We just sang that this morning. And because we want to do God's will. So if you were to ask me at the end of the service, you came up to me and say, well, Pastor, then are you an optimist or a pessimist? I would say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am. But mostly I'm an optimist because I know that God is in control of the circumstances. Sometimes, though, the answer depends upon where you are at the moment. It's kind of like being in Jerusalem the day Jesus was crucified. On Friday, pessimism would have reigned. But then on that Sunday morning, as the truth began to slowly dawn that the Lord had actually risen from the dead, 
as that truth began to go around, suddenly the pessimism began to turn into optimism. See, you and I live on this side of the empty tomb. So yes, Christians are both optimists and pessimists, but we ought to be far more optimistic because we see, when we see what's happening around in this world, we know that Jesus Christ conquered the grave, and because he lives, because he is, we live too. Well, that brings me back to David Wilkerson and some other people who, who talk poorly about our country. Now, while I share some concerns about it, wonder what the future holds in the short term, I know who's holding the world in the long term. And that makes me ultimately a biblical optimist. I may form my own club called Biblical Optimist. We'll stand in opposition, John, to the Toastmasters. Well, not really. But Biblical Optimist. Because, friends, I think these are great days to be alive. What better time for Christians to live than when the country we live in is considered to be a mission field? I can't think of a better time to be alive. I mean, these are exciting days. These are amazing days. These are uncertain days. These are frightening days. All of those things are true at the same time. But when you see evil advancing in the world, you ought to keep in mind what Jesus said and not what Sean Hannity says, although he repeats this all the time. It was Jesus who said it first in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Why should we be afraid? You remember a couple months ago when Paul Harvey died? I listened to Paul Harvey off and on for, I don't know how long that guy was on the radio. But when he died, they listed some of his famous quotes. This one caught my attention. In times like these, it helps us to recall that there have always been times like these. I mean, Paul Harvey is right. There have always been times like these. Paul was writing about times like these 2,000 years ago. And no matter what happens today, friends, God's promises about tomorrow will always stand. On your message outline, I just just started listing Bible passages for you to remind you of of why we ought not to be afraid. I've got almost a, a full page of them, really. I mean, Exodus 15, too. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Deuteronomy, be strong and be courageous. Don't fear anybody. 1 Samuel, there is no rock like our God. 2 Kings, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God is our refuge and strength. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Greater is he that's in you than he that is in this world. Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then, the last passage on that page, this is how we should live. This is how you and I ought to be living in light of the magnificent promises of God. You see those wonderful words from 1 Corinthians. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is is not in vain. So what do we say then? I think we say simply this. Be encouraged. 
Let not your hearts be troubled. Watch your step. Redeem the time. Seek to do God's will every day. I mean, why be a pessimist when you're living in some of the greatest days of history? Today's the day to seize the day for the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are troubling times. There's no doubt about it. And what these troubling times mean, we don't know. But like Paul Harvey even said, there's always going to be days like these. Paul knew it. The people in the Old Testament knew it. But what they knew beyond that was who you are and who's in control of the times. Lord, may we take heed to Paul's words that we should stand firm and let nothing move us and to always give ourselves fully to your work because our labor for you is never going to be in vain. May we be encouraged and may our hearts not be troubled. May we redeem the time and seek to do your will each and every day. For it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.